Shut up and sit down. everybody. Before we get to uh, the actual content of the show, I would like to remind you all that um, while I appreciate how much you enjoy my work, and um, I do, I, I really appreciate it, I do not appreciate seeing you in various avenues in fandom, on Facebook, Twitter, other people's sites, wherever, AO3, disparaging another author to compliment me or implying that another author isn't as good as me. Um, I don't want to see it. That is profoundly rude and insulting to both me and the author that you're um, referencing. So don't do it. Just, just, just don't. Because um, I, I, I really... <laughs> There is actually nothing more disheartening to me for me to get on my site first thing in the morning and to see a comment and saying, oh, you did, did this so much better than so-and-so. I really enjoyed your version of this. I liked how you treated this trope better than so-and-so. It makes me want to smack you in the face. Um, it's so disrespectful. And it, it, it fucks up my whole day. It just, it, it, just don't do it. Just just don't. Um, even when it might be a joke to you, it's not funny. It's, 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 it's just it's terrible, and I don't like it. And um, whenever I see it on my site, I delete it. Um, I don't like... I just like seeing it on other people's sites and on their fic, because I can't delete it. I can't, you know, and I... The, the closest I've ever actually coming to flaming anybody in fandom was somebody over on AO3 who wrote a comment on somebody's fic um, that they enjoyed. It was like, I really enjoyed what you did here, but Kira did it better. I wanted to jump on that commenter with both feet. But I didn't. I, I refrained. I walked away. Although I did contact the author in question of that particular fic and tell them how much I enjoyed it. And I apologized on behalf of my asshole reader. And there is actually fewer things I hate more in fandom than having to go behind you and apologize for your fucking behavior. You're not my children. Now, I shouldn't have to apologize for you for the shit you do in my name. I... <laughs> yeah, Ho might be right, Barb. It might be. Yeah, it is. It's really terrible behavior, and I don't like to see it. Um, and I just 
just don't. Don't, because it's so backhanded and ugly, and I really don't find it at all flattering or um, appropriate in any single way. I I really don't. Um, it's it it's terrible. It's gross. It's gross-ass behavior, dudes. It really is. Okay, on to the topic. Um, just, you know, don't be an asshole. Wait, you mean someone compared you to me? Or just somebody else in fandom? <laughs> oh, oh God, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, do you see how terrible this is? Do you see? <sighs> April 2014. Fantastic. Yeah, 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 wow, wow. <sighs> just don't do it. It's it, 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 Honestly, it, it's really embarrassing. And I saw one where basically um, someone I would actually consider a really popular writer in the Harry Potter fandom was compared to me and found liking. And found lacking. And I wanted to crawl under a rock. I just embarrassed. I was, my face got really hot. I was really super embarrassed. And, um, so ugly it's so ugly (sighs) ugliness pure ugliness anyways anyways um dude jilly i am so sorry that somebody did that to you it's it's really um it's really ugly and see there i am apologizing for some asshole's behavior and the thing is i rarely even apologize for my own behavior it is honestly so rare that I give a genuine apology that I put a an event tag book one day when I did it. I put Kira apologized. It's in my timeline on Facebook. Now I have to go do it again. Today I apologize to Julie James. On behalf of one of my asshole readers. Fuck's sake. Anyways. I blamed you earlier, Jilly. Um, because um, we've converted somebody to the Hawaii Five-O fandom. And, and, and they're preparing for the mothership. And she said she didn't know who to blame. You or me. And I told her she should blame you. <laughs> Just saying. I'm honestly not sure which one of us <laughs> can take the credit for that because I don't know where that because there's not a whole lot in that pairing. But when I saw it, I kind of fell in love and I was like, oh, oh God, look! And I don't know which one of us started it. Um, um, that particular mothership thing. So I'm gonna go with you. <laughs> I really am because I read a story. Yep, we're, we're going to go with you. 
Okay, fine. I'll take like partial credit. You can have all the blame. <laughs> Anyways, tonight's podcast is about writing the bad guy, and I had um. I had done a smaller short and junk on this, and I, ha- I had to listen to it because it's been a while since I did that. Um, and I have it linked in the description. It's called Short and Junk Villains in Fiction. And also, if you look into my archive, and you, lo- I suggest you look at the um, the podcast for <coughs> um, Bitchcraft, The Importance of Being Earnest, which I think is it's because... Your your villain is one half of the equation, um, and when you talk about cr- you know crafting your villain, um, what you're really doing is creating a foil for your hero um, or heroine um, for your protagonist. And w- when you create the antagonist for your protagonist, they there has to be a certain chemistry there, and. I'm not saying romantic chemistry or sexual chemistry, but there has to be a chemistry between them that creates um, friction and um, and antagonism. <laughs> but what it, it what it, what it boils down to, I think, is that. When you're crafting your bad guy, your villain, your antagonist, um, and I talked about this in the Short and Junk podcast where um, I talked about how that you need to ground your villain um, in reality and um, to make their goals and their actions um, realistic, even in fantastic settings, because it creates um, a foundation for your reader to connect with your villain and understand their motivations and their actions, even when they're horrible. But when your villain is fantastic and over the top, it can be difficult for the reader to connect with them um, and to take them seriously. So, you know, I talk a lot about foundations and and re and, and writing and um creating your plot and uh uh I know that for those of you who, who who pants um a lot of this doesn't really do a damn thing for you and I don't know um maybe it does maybe it does more than I think it does um and uh but I don't know and I don't know um how to to engage with you in your process as a pantser. Um, because I know a lot of pantsers who don't even create character profiles at all. I mean, they go in blind to an idea, and I find that deeply uncomfortable, and I don't know how to relate to you um, on that front. And so I've gotten um, a lot of... Uh, I've gotten feedback in the past from people who pants um, who don't get a lot out of my podcast for that very reason. Um, but then on the other side of it, I've gotten pa- emails and stuff from pantsers who actually get a lot out of my um, podcast, not so much than they start planning and 
you know, plotting their characters or, you know, building a plot, but in that they um, are able to use my advice when they write on the fly. So I hope that, you know, ever how you manage to do this, that, that you're getting something out of it in that respect. Uh, but when it comes to your villain, and I think, honestly, it it goes back to your hero. Because he is a foil. And I say he, he could be a she. The villain is your foil for your um, for your hero. And what happens is is that because they are basically um mirrored in your story that you that you <laughs> I talked about the your your main character, your hero, having the um, moral high ground um, and acting from a place of good, um, or at least acting from a place of right, even if they're actually, like, you know, doing um, terrible things, but they're doing it for what um, you've established for them is the right reasons. Uh, <clears throat> the, the person you craft as the villain, the character you craft as a villain is um, you get a uh, an opportunity to highlight parts of your character based on what you do with your villain. I, one of the more interesting parts of Harry Potter is the how how very much Harry and Tom Riddle have in common. Um, and what sets them apart. But J.K. Rowling actually does mirroring um, all through the series. Um, y- you have um, uh, the Marauders, um, then you have the Golden Trio, uh, you have uh, you have the character of uh, Peter Pettigrew, who was part of the Marauders, but not. Um, then you have Neville Longbottom, who was friends with Harry, Hermione, and Ron, but was not part of the Golden Trio. He was outside. Um, and then you have uh, the mirroring of of Tom Riddle and Harry Potter themselves, and the situations in which they grow up. And they both grow up in very difficult situations um, where they're not given, um, where they're neglected and abused um, in in various ways. And they both come into the magical world, um, and they're both heavily influenced by Albus Dumbledore, um, and how he influenced them, honestly, not that different. He repeatedly um, sent Harry back into an abusive situation. He repeatedly sent Tom Riddle back into an abusive situation and never made any effort whatsoever to to correct that. Um, and Yeah, I think that you can... Um, look at that as almost a social experiment and that does that that trope does pop up in Harry Potter a lot because as a villain 
Tom Riddle is an excellent foil for Harry Potter um, because he is someone who um, was deprived of a, a loving home. He is um, someone who grew up in an abusive situation, um, who didn't know about magic until he got his letter. Um, and then you give him this fantastic world, but you tell him he can't stay. He has to go home to this orphanage every fucking year, year after year after year, when he knows that there's a world where he can be, be magical and be safe and learn, and but he's not allowed to stay there. And Harry's in the same boat. Harry is even as dangerous as Harry as um, Hogwarts turned out to be for Harry. Uh, uh, repeatedly, he, he is given this this place to be in this magical, amazing world, and then it is taken away from him over and over and over and over again. Julie got a lot to say in the, to say in the chat room. Do you want to say on the podcast because you're all up in it? <laughs> And Dumbledore is a um is a good you can shift Dumbledore into a place of, of villainy, um, in the middle. That that's my little way of, uh, of remembering her phone number in the middle. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were saying I, I interrupted myself in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> No, but you but 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 you told me that you did this little thing in the chat room once where you said in the middle, and yeah. now I always recognize your phone number because of the in the middle part. Um, so yeah, I think I think we I think the 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 reflection I think Tom Riddle there's like a a, a very literal mirroring. Um, they have so much in common, um, whereas Dumbledore, and I think I think that commonality actually, in some cases, for some people, engenders sympathy, and in a lot of ways, I actually felt a lot of pity for Voldemort. Um, not not so much that I wouldn't want to see him dead, but you know, still, because uh, you, you, you can you can actually that's the best kind of bad guy, right? Is one that you a little bit empathize with, and that you a little bit understand why they did what they did. Um, yeah, but sometimes not me, not we, me in that podcast before um, talked about you know giving your your villain realistic um, situations and expectations and goals because it makes it easier to sympathize um, with. It brings it gives them. depth. I mean, the the arc, the you know the the arch villain, the archetype of the 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 mad evil villain, um, is can be very hard to relate to. And but sometimes, sometimes that's what you want is an unrelatable villain, just somebody that people can outright hate. And I think it, it I think I almost not not always, but sometimes I see people cast Dumbledore more in that role of the outright hate. And I think it's because he had so much power to affect change and didn't do anything with it, or used it in a way that was not to our hero's benefit. And so it's really easy to just cast him in the role uh, of um, almost pure evil villain, whereas Voldemort is a little bit harder to see in black and white, depending upon how you spin it. You know, if you just spin it the way J.K. Rowling did, then Dumbledore is more just 
you know, um, he's more like the guy that's just guilty of negligence, right? Or distant, or uh, you know, there's apathy and disinterest there as opposed to, you know, outright bad acts. So, and sometimes disinterest and negligence people people can find more offensive than doing nothing can be more offensive than doing something bad. What I would say about Dumbledore in canon is that he's he's a when I said earlier about shifting him, I think you do have to shift him a little. A little. Yeah. You have to assign motivations to his behavior, even his canon behavior, that is never clearly defined by the author. And that's because, like I said before, that Harry Potter is told basically from Harry's point of view, and he couldn't be... He's honestly the least curious child to ever be told he's magical. (laughs) Right. And so Dumbledore comes across, from Harry's point of view, as or any child's point of view, um looking at him through the lens of a child as being um, at, at best absent-minded. Um, it's hard to interpret his behavior because one of the first things you hear from Dumbledore, not the very first thing, but one of the first things Harry hears from Dumbledore is that you'll die if you go to the third floor corridor. I mean, but he's also told that? By, by a prefix that that he's nutters, right? <laughs> Percy Weasley, who has who has a great deal of respect for Dumbledore in that moment, tells Harry Potter that Dumbledore is nuts. He's a doddering old fool, basically. Apparently. And then and then Dumbledore does things like allow him to go out to the Forbidden Forest for. For um, uh, for for um, for allows detention to happen in the Forbidden Forest, where there are things he knows are deadly. So, I think that, and we've talked before about characterization. And the reason why it's easy to make Dumbledore a villain is because I, I this is my inference, is that when J.K. Rowling was writing Harry Potter, she wrote. Harry to the exclusion of everything else. And she wrote actions on the parts of the adults that are so hard to understand the motivation for, because you're seeing them through, as you said, the eyes of a very uncurious child, um, that it's really easy to put negative spin on all those behaviors because they don't, they're really, it really, they're, the actions say odd things about those characters. And I think if she had stopped and looked at the book from Dumbledore's point of view, she'd be like, wow, he's really inconsistent and callous. And um, I mean, I don't know how you could examine him as a character and not think that Acknowledge. Acknowledge that he's... Yeah. Callous and indifferent and negligent and possibly even borderline cruel. So, you know, when we get those blinders about the way we're characterizing one character, we're so busy making things happen for Harry that we don't, you know, you don't stop to think about what it says about everybody around him that these things are going on and that nobody even thinks about it. What it says about the entire adult wizarding world. You know, we we talked one day in, you know, um, about you, you had written something, and I my response to it was I just it's like my it, it's almost like 
a ridiculous, you know, fetish I have for stories where adults act like adults in the Harry Potter universe. Because you had written somebody it's acting the, like a grown-up. It's the James, the James Potter thing. Was it the James Potter thing? No, no, no. I think it was something else. Oh, no. It's my Zale thing. The one where I want to make Zale find the um. Yeah, you were just telling me about crops. it, about your idea. Yeah. And I was that like, was I, was like I have such... Yeah, so I was like, I have such a fetish for what we were talking about after. And I was like, I have such a fetish for adults in the Harry Potter world acting like grown-ups. It just, it's, I, I just, I latch onto it. Like, it's just like, like, man, it's like, oh, I want to read it. I want to cuddle it. I don't want to let it go. And it's like, that's so, and I thought, why am I reacting so strongly to somebody just acting like an adult? <laughs> and it's because as an adult, looking adult behaviors through the eyes of a child, none of these people are acting like grown-ups. So it's really easy when you see that to turn those people and make them the villain, an alternate villain. Capricious because says, I have a hard time with how Harry forgave Dumbledore. Oh, the chat room moved on me. Um, and named one of his children after Dumbledore. You act like that statement was said from the perspective that Harry realized that Dumbledore betrayed him. And in canon... Harry never came to that realization. No. He never recognized that Dumbledore led him down a rosy, abusive path to suicide. He never acknowledged that. It never even came up. Harry doesn't have to forgive Dumbledore, um, Dumbledore in canon because Harry has no idea that Dumbledore betrayed him. And even when he finds out he has a fucking horcrux in his head, he still does not have the complete meltdown he is due. Because really, how could any fucking responsible adult allow a child? Because Dumbledore had to know after the first year. He had to know. Mm -hmm. How could he let Harry carry part of a dark wizard's soul for Seventeen fucking years. But even if he didn't know from the beginning, even if he didn't, if he only knew for certain the first year that Voldemort had survived and that he had done this and they had Harry in the infirmary and they had to see the damage done to his scar... In that moment, even if they didn't know before, and I think Dumbledore probably did suspect from the very beginning, because he was looking for Riddle. But even if he didn't, if he only knew from that first year, how how the fuck could he not do something? Because he did nothing. Which I think probably in canon is Dumbledore's greatest failings. Failing. Yeah, he, did he did nothing. Yeah. He knew a lot and he did nothing. And um, and he did nothing, and Sid was pointing out in the chat room, he did nothing in, a, in regards to a lot of things. He just spent a lot of time doing nothing. Um, so the stuff he did do, you know, probably seemed like it was bigger than it was <laughs> because he spent so much time not doing anything. Um, 
he let Grindelwald fuck around um, for years before he decided to fight him. Well, he agreed with Grindelwald for a long time, right? And before the prophecy was made, and the prophecy was made in around like 1979. Yeah. Riddle had been around for decades doing what he was doing. Dumbledore had no idea that there was a prophecy going to happen and there was going to be this um, child who could defeat Voldemort. And he was considered the most powerful magical user in Britain, and Riddle feared him. Why didn't he put a stop to Riddle before? I don't think Grindelwald murdered um, Ariana Dumbledore. During that duel, she gets hit by a curse and she's killed. I don't think Grindelwald did it. Um, the level of, it was, the yeah, level of guilt that Dumbledore... Yeah. But the level of guilt that Dumbledore, Dumbledore carried did. spoke more to him, his, his own action being the source of the curse, him being the source of the curse that killed her. I agree, yeah. Because if you're just if it's just your lover who who acted up and killed your sister, you get angry, you kill him, right? You you battle right, him and you put him, him down. Even when he had an opportunity to do it in the most just way possible, he imprisoned him instead. Mm-hmm. Which all sort sort of points to Dumbledore being why um, that Dumbledore being the, the source of the curse that hit her. Um, there's so much that Dumbledore's actions, I actually think, when I read the Harry Potter books, and I don't know if this is true, but my read on it is that the Horcruxes were tacked onto the plot and not completely considered what they would, the, the ramifications of that, of her making Harry a Horcrux, and, as opposed to magic being the source of it. Because until the Horcruxes were um, revealed, you know, I, I, I probably, like everybody else, was assuming that well, Harry's reaction to Voldemort was a magical tie, not a soul tie, you know? And um, I do wonder when she created the Horcruxes, and I I feel like the diary wasn't originally a Horcrux. I didn't feel like it was a Horcrux either. I felt like the Horcruxes were brought in or thought up um, as a way later to explain Voldemort's immortality. Um and I think that they were like, "This is a good idea." And sometimes you go you, when you're writing, and this is just, and this is just, I mean, I don't, like, I don't know this. But this is speaking from my experience of where sometimes I try to solve a problem later in the writing process that I didn't sort sort out up front. And I think it's a really good idea, and I implement it. And then I go and I, when I look back, if I get some space from it, I look back and I really see all the plot holes that it introduced for me, or what it says, you know, because often it does is when you're trying to tie something up with a bow later that was not meant to be tied with that bow. Um, or maybe you, it was a flat bow. <laughs> maybe the bow she'd originally thought of, maybe her publisher said it was boring and she went with something else. I and mean, there's no telling what happened behind the scenes. But it felt like it was disconnected from the early parts of the story. Because when you reread the first few books and Dumbledore's behavior in light of what it seems like his knowledge was, it makes his behavior. It may, yeah, he he gets uglier and he, he he looks terrible. He looks terrible as a character, which is why it's so and easy I really to cast don't as a believe villain. that J.K. Rowling was ever meant. I, I I don't believe she ever meant for Dumbledore to end up in that position. 
No, I don't think she meant it either. Dumbledore is her Gandalf. He was never meant to be um, looked at as this manipulative, negligent asshole. Yeah, there was a connection, a magical connection. um, And that magical connection continued in book two with the diary. There were a lot of ways to explain that connection that didn't have anything to do with soul peace. Um, You know, so I think it could be that she had a different explanation for what was going on with that. It could have just been a bit of Voldemort's magic was trapped by Lily's protections. I mean, there's all kinds of things that that, you know, his reaction to um, Voldemort's presence could have meant. It could have been a variety of things. It could just have been the prophecy. Yeah, it could have just been. Yeah, it could have been like an advantage for Harry that fate was giving him, so that he would be able to spot Voldemort, no matter what form he took. Gandalf was manipulative, but it it Gandalf's role in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings is is one of manipulation. Um, but Gandalf never hesitated to 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 join in, to get in there, to to do what he could. And Gandalf never ever ever once took for granted the life of either Bilbo or Frodo or anybody else involved in the fellowship. They were all precious to him. And he fought to help them and protect them and it was never his their lives were never cheap. But Dumbledore held the lives of everyone around him cheap. As much as I don't like the character of Snape, um, Dumbledore was absolutely, utterly reckless and terrible to Snape. That's a powerful moment in the movie um, where where Frodo volunteers to take the ring. Because when you hear Frodo's voice ring out, I'll take it. And Gandalf looks like he's heartbroken. Because he knows he can't carry it. And he knows that really out of everybody who's ever had any kind of contact with the ring as far as he knows, that Bilbo lasted the longest, which means that Frodo is probably the only one among them who can carry it. And in ways, Frodo was more inured to its effects than even Bilbo was. Um, Although Bilbo reacted to the ring more strongly the more time he had it. Um, Right. And we don't really see Frodo being too, too weird about the ring until he's actually in Mordor. I think it's because the ring got hungry. Yeah. I think the ring was scared. The more powerful it became, right, the more powerful the, the ring became, the more problem it became. And the thing is, is that Gandalf, and you'll, that, that moment is really well played in, in the movie. He looks like somebody has just ripped the heart out of him. And yes, and he died for them. And Dumbledore... Um, Gandalf's sacrifice 
in the Fellowship of the Ring makes Dumbledore's death in um, the Half-Blood Prince seem false and cheap. Mm-hmm. I agree. And almost selfish. It's almost selfish. Like he's tired and he's done. Gandalf wasn't tired and he wasn't done. He was like, I'm going to kick this thing's ass. And he did kick that thing's ass and he came back. <laughs> he came back a badass. <laughs> you know, in terms, and, of, um, in terms of Gandalf being manipulative, that 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 sort of plot device, that ploy, you see it used a lot. Um, and I'm probably, I'm sure it's used in real life, of manipulating people into doing something. Um, you use their conscience. I mean, if, if there's like some great evil that needs to be, um, okay, it's, speaking strictly from an entertainment perspective, if there's some great evil that needs to be dealt with, if everyone who is able just steps up and goes, I want to destroy this evil, it's actually not very entertaining. Um, I mean, it could be, I guess, written that way. But there's usually some level of pulling that out, of trying to recruit the right people, find the way to, to get them to go, this is what you're fighting for, you're fighting for your child, you're fighting for your country, blah, 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 blah. So the manipulating people into doing the right thing, you know, to bring out, manipula- manipulating them to bring out the best part of them is a very old um, and tried and true and probably resonates because it's somewhat realistic. Um, so I never, in terms of, you know, Gandalf, it never really, it never sat but poorly with me that he was manipulative, although it more sat poorly with me that he often would withhold things. Um, that he considered himself, and it probably was actually wiser than those he was with, um, but the manipulation did death is a little bit deeper than that. Go ahead. Yeah, so, but with, with Gandalf, I didn't particularly his manipulation didn't didn't sit poorly with me because he was like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna manipulate you into doing this. I'm gonna be with you every step of the way, and I'm gonna make sure you're as protected as you can be, as I can make you. And if I have to, I will put myself in front of you so that you can finish your mission. So manipulative, but also still one of the heroes, right? Whereas Dumbledore was manipulative in a trying to be God kind of way. Um, and, you know... What Dumbledore does very hands-off. What Dumbledore does is he's already dying because he made that dumbass decision to put that ring on because he was obsessed with Hallows. For selfish reasons. For selfish reasons, he's, for selfish reasons he's dying. But he chose to die as he did, as an example to Harry. Look what I'm doing. I'm going Ew. to sacrifice myself to keep you safe. I'm going to sacrifice myself to save Draco Malfoy's soul. I'm sacrificing myself, Harry. Do you see this? Do you see me sacrificing? This is your role. This is your path. You have to sacrifice, too. You have to die for everyone. Like, I'm dying for you right now. Like, your mother died for you. That is horrible. And I think that's very true. That was what he was modeling for Harry, was how to commit suicide. Yeah. 
at the right time. At the oper- he was modeling how to do it at the opportune moment. For the greater fucking good. Yeah, yeah, Harry had, Harry had no choice. He had to watch. Which is also a lesson. Don't take anything don't take anybody with you, Harry. Just you. That is really ugly. Because you're the chosen one. So he was modeling the sacrifice he fully intended for Harry to make since ever, always. It's deeply ugly when you look. We talk a lot about consequences and decisions, and and I really do not believe that J.K. Rowling ever meant for us to look at Dumbledore in this fashion. Because in her mind, in her writer's mind, he's her character. He's 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 her Gandalf, and she never meant for him to be looked at in these terms. But the consequences of her creating the Horcruxes. Um, and making Harry a Horcrux and Harry's suicide at the end, even if he does come back, um, it casts a deep, ugly shadow over Dumbledore as a character that cannot be ignored. If you're an adult, kids don't see this shit. Although, like I said before, when when my nephew um, read Harry Potter, he was deeply concerned about the fact that apparently um, England, Britain, didn't have CPS. Because <laughs> he came to me and he was like, no, really, they don't have CPS in Britain? Because if they don't, we need to do something about that because kids need protection. And I was like, he's like six or seven. And I'm like, no, dude, they have CPS. I, I don't know... Um, I don't know why Harry stayed a, stayed a whole decade in the closet. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Because my, my sister was seven or eight when the Harry Potter books were coming out. The middle sister, not not the one I'm yapping about all the time. Um, the middle sister. She was, you know, a sprout. When, so this was just right up her alley, although at one point I refused. To, I was like, this is too dark for you, young lady. Um, <laughs> I think we got to the fifth book when I said it was too dark for me. <laughs> Um, but she, she was, she was very vexed by just the first book when we started reading it together, because, um, it wasn't even, it wasn't, it was some of the things that kids twig into, because it wasn't that Harry was left on a doorstep, like a milk bottle. That wasn't even what she objected to. It was, it was cold outside. (laughs) It's that it was November. My niece wants to live in the closet. She has no idea that's a bad thing. She wants to put her bed in the closet. We're like, no, you cannot put your bed in the walk-in closet. I don't see why not. I would have my own room then. That's her point. Some people are are fine living in a closet. And so if kids do things, see things differently. And so for her, it's like, you remember, she lives in, my my family up there lives in a really small town. And so for her, a kid being on the doorstep didn't seem like that big a deal. Um, but it was cold out, 
you know, and they're Canadian, so November is especially cold. <laughs> it's like, Damn, it's November. November. It's like, but it's November. <laughs> it's already snowing by then. I'm like, well, it probably isn't snowing in England. And so we actually, she had me like checking the weather in England in November. I'm like, well, okay, but it's probably <laughs> raining. <laughs> Probably writing. Yeah, <laughs> hope I, I hope Petunia's porch had a cover, <laughs> or at least a really long eve. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So it was just it was she was she was just so concerned about that. So it's one of the first things she noticed when we're barely into the story, and she's like flummoxed about why two adults will leave a child outside in November, a baby, a baby outside in November. If it had been if it had been was, July, she wouldn't have even probably blinked at the whole thing. My niece's only concern about that was she said, "But I was walking in a year." Yes, there, yeah, there is that. And she was, she was walking in a year, um, full tilt. <laughs> she owned that shit. Cause so yeah, Harry was probably walking. Yeah, definitely. I would say by fifteen months, he was definitely walking. Those kinds of behaviors, I mean, I don't know if you, if you, if you, if you, I don't know how J.K. Rowling would, would pick how she would answer, why would Dumbledore do this was not irresponsible about any of his weird behaviors. Why would he allow a, a troll into the school, which he eventually did allow the troll into the school, even if he didn't let it in to begin with? Why did you... Bring the philosopher's stone into into the school. Why did you have Fluffy? Why did you have a Cerberus? Why did you? Why would why would why would you have him do these things? Just from from the most micro logistical things that seem off for an adult for a headmaster of a school, you know. And you can even ask the question: Is it appropriate for the headmaster of a school to be using the school that hundreds and hundreds of children are in to fight the forces of darkness in? Should he be doing that? Should he be setting <laughs> traps? For the really? most evil dark lord in all of history inside of a school, is that really okay? And here, here's here's the deeper question about the first book. We're totally off the topic, kinda. Okay, the, okay. If Hogwarts has these amazing, awesome, fantastic wards, and it's the safest place in Britain outside of the fucking bank, um, and the bank figured out that there was something wrong with Quirrell, and he didn't get to rob the vault. Or he did. He he robbed an empty vault, and the bank almost caught him. Why the fuck didn't Dumbledore notice that he was possessed? Yeah. It, it's just it, of course you can do sense. consequences and ramifications and say, I think he did know. Now, obviously, that, that's not how J.K. Rowling wrote it. No, she wrote it from Harry's point of view, and she wrote all these things to make Harry's plot happen. And didn't stop to think about what it said about Dumbledore. But it's why Dumbledore is so easy on all the adults. Why it's so easy to turn so many of the adults into villains. It's because when you, when you try to apply some logic to their behavior, there's nothing good coming out of that. When you try to apply motive to why they would do what they would do, it doesn't come off good. There is no good Ever. motive for 
um, letting leaving a child on the doorstep at 15 months old and not getting him medical care. I mean, why wasn't it, – it's just it's such a mystery around why nobody had questions about Dumbledore just absconding with um, a child that he claimed had defeated Voldemort by blocking an, un- an unblockable curse, and everybody just went, oh, okay. And so, like, a lack of curiosity on the adults' part, too. <laughs> Fantastic. Great job, Harry Potter. Like, oh, cause Let's I make money off your name you. while you're gone. If somebody walked in, and you know, so say you're a cop, okay, you're a police officer, and I walk, you know, I walk in, and I say, this baby, this 15-month-old baby that I have taken and placed elsewhere, um, stopped a, a 45 caliber bullet without a Kevlar vest. You would, would you just go, oh, okay, good job, baby. No, nope. you want to see that baby. <laughs> <laughs> Where is this baby? Where is this Let's... bullet? Bring that kid back over here. <laughs> we have questions. <laughs> is his skin made out of Kevlar? Is he a mutant? <laughs> you know, What's we would have questions here? about What's it. Going on? <clears throat> but what it boils down to is that you can, through not considering your consequences and not considering the ramifications of your character's choices, create villains that you don't mean to create. Another case in point, Ziva David. For real, right? Now, fandom's very divided on Ziva. I think she was meant to be a bad guy. I do think she was meant to be a bad guy, and like a bunch of crazy people went, we love her! And the show creators went, whoa, (laughs) We better write her That's a different storyline. That's not what line. we intended. <laughs> oh, my husband hates her too. <laughs> yeah, the minute she walked up, the minute she she appeared on the screen, it was like. But let, let's actually oh. back up from Ziva, and here's a case of another case of um, fans having to fill in the why, um, and doing it in a way the creators may not have intended. So our first. W- long-term villain on NCIS was Ari Haswari. And we drug out more than a season with Ari, and then he ultimately murdered Kate, all because of some weird thing going on with Gibbs, apparently. Um, so you've got Ari. Always. An event, yeah, always Gibbs. It's like these, these, these incredible, you know, horrible mastermind villains eventually all seem to focusing on Gibbs, which uh, it's like, okay, whatever. That when he when that guy that blow up blew up NCIS, blew up their headquarters, he was all up in Gibbs. It's like why? Why are you focused on Gibbs? I don't get it. But anyway, so you've got Ari, who is Mossad, placed in Hamas, who is working with Hamas, supposedly working for Hamas, to conduct terrorist activities on US soil but he's actually supposed to be feeding information to the FBI and the CIA. And for some reason, as part of his cover with Hamas, he goes after Gibbs. <laughs> Still, that's really shady right there. Okay, that that right there is really shady, that in part of his maintaining his cover with Hamas is to go after Gibbs. And that somehow that actually all morphed into a real vendetta with Gibbs, but he actually truly was with Hamas. He wasn't, he was actually had defected from um so all of his motivation is very unclear and then before anything with Ari can really become clear before he really sharpens as a villain he's murdered 
are by his own are, sister. He's married our murder, murdered our Katie, and in order to hurt Gibbs, he tries to murder Abby in order to hurt Gibbs. He tries to go after Jenny in order to hurt Gibbs. And before we can really figure out what the fuck is going on, Ziva kills him. So you've got a villain that you know everybody's caught up in, and then it was actually I don't know if it was really just where are you going to transfer all of that, you know, unsatisfied um, angst over and lack of understanding on Aries' motives, what he was doing and why. People start, for starters, we transfer our feelings about Aries a little bit onto Ziva. Um, But also, you immediately start inferring negative things about Eli David. Because all we know about Eli at this point is Ari and Ziva. So it's really easy for the fan fiction writer to make your villain, who NCIS had set up to be the villain, which is Ari, to make him an object of sympathy and pity and have this nebulous bad guy in the background pulling the strings and you have the evil father trope. Well, when you look at it, this is a man who raised one child who betrayed his own country and another who shot her own brother. Mm Mm-hmm. It makes you question what kind of person he is from the start. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you do. I mean, you raise one psycho. (laughs) That was maybe a fluke. It could happen to anybody. You raise two... You start to question the parenting. A plus. A plus parenting, yes. And so it's really easy for a fan fiction writer to, in in crafting their ultimate villain, to make it Eli. Because what are you doing, dude? You gave us Aerie and Ziva. And they further that his callous disregard for his own children with with what they do to Ziva after the whole um, Rifkin matter. And she ends up in a POW camp where um, you can speculate that she was treated like a woman would be treated in a situation like that. And Daddy sent her on that mission. He sent her on that mission. Didn't confirm her death, obviously, since she wasn't dead. Right. So she, who failed in her mission at NCIS, or not failed, she was no longer able to supply the information that she had been supplying um, because she had been committing espionage on his behalf. And when she was no longer able to do that, he sends her on a mission that winds, winds up in the hands of a terrorist and then leaves her there. To be treated the way you she would have been treated. Be treated. Quite frankly, there probably came a point when she would have preferred to be murdered. Yes. And then, and I think one of the reasons why, and this is a case of, again, writing without considering your consequences, I think the reason why they did that the writers had her in that terrorist camp and had her be, you know, a prisoner um, is because they needed the audience to be prepared to forgive Ziva. 
So they gave her horrible so they put circumstances. Her in a... Right. So they gave put her in horrible circumstances and made her her punishment for what she had done punishment. I, I I'm I'm not agreeing that it was a suitable punishment at all. I'm just saying this is a that was probably their point of view. We're going to punish her in a way that the audience will forgive her for betraying Tony, betraying her, betraying the United States. But you know, doing all this betrayal, we're going to make what happened to her so egregious that we're going to be able to put all that stuff aside, and everybody's going to want to just push it under the rug and accept her back on the team. Because her father abandoned her in a terrorist camp where she was tortured and raped. Four right. months and left her there. So they're saying we're going to make. They, they came up with, they, they came up with the worst, worst thing they could do to her, and keep her alive, in order to get the, the audience over their anger at her. Because you have to, right? If, if, if Eva was just out bumming around running missions from Assad and came back and tried to come back, is anybody going to accept that? Would the audience? The, your, your audience's suspension of disbelief isn't going to get get there. Now, audience's suspension but of disbelief is pretty fucked anyway. But they also have to blunt anyway, the but... emotional betrayal between her and Tony. They have to blunt that in such a way that they can get them into a position where um, Tony starts to pine after her. Right. When, all realistically speaking, not only should he have been not been on board with risking his own life to rescue her dumbass, he should have, like, been plotting her murder. Because I would have been. Mm-hmm. Because she is guilty of espionage. And she did try... She did... She she, she acts like she's got some kind of moral high ground that because he killed her boyfriend. Well, her boyfriend murdered... What was it? A federal people? agent. And her a federal boyfriend, agent. At least one federal agent. Yeah, he murdered the ICE agent, and then there were the pe- all the, the trail of criminals that he killed in the U.S. that he was told to stop. That was the ep- that was the legend episode that kicked off um, NCIS LA. Is he went out and started killing all these criminals that they were looking for in response to another murder, and um, that's when he was warned to get the fuck out of the country, and he didn't do it. But Ziva was complicit after the fact in the murder of an ICE agent. Tony, as he is written, gives absolutely is in character that he would have let that slide if he saw Ziva as a daughter. But Tony, as he was written, was not going to be complicit with that kind of bullshit. There's no way he was going to sit back and be okay with Ziva um, helping being being an accessory to her boyfriend's murder um, of an ICE agent. It wasn't going to happen. Then they let her back on the team, and what did she do? She is complicit in the murder of Vance's wife. Wife. That's right. And her own father, in a way. And he never even calls her on it. Because if she told them that she recognized her own father in that video, do you honestly think Vance would have had that asshole in his house? Around his kids and around his wife? No, I love this not. idea, Azure. Write it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, what it boils down to is that um, the um, creation of a villain should be purposeful, um, and 
<laughs> and that you should be careful with the motivations of your secondary characters and that you don't inadvertently create more bad guys. Or if that bad guy people want to be the bad guy more than your bad guy. I mean, that's that's suboptimal, is you've identified the antagonist, and you're riding him along, and all of your audience is clamoring and going, yeah, 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 get that guy. And you're like, wait a minute, that's my that's my hero's best friend. And I'm like, yeah, 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 get that guy. And it's like, what? <laughs> is the unintentional villain is really the last thing you want. Yeah, you you don't want an unintentional villain. Um, for instance, I'd be perfectly okay with Voldemort going to Azkaban and spending the rest of his immortal life there. But I really, 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 really wanted um, Umbridge to die. And Snape. Really? And Dumbledore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Dum- Umbridge was way worse than Voldy. We all disliked her more. Because, again, you get... The, the the thing about Umbridge is that we we've all encountered that bully of a teacher, um, but her uh, her motivations are unclear. Mm-hmm. Is she just a blood purist? Um, what's going on with her? My problem with the character of Weir boils down to writing. Um, the original Weir was strong and um, decisive and, and really powerful. Um, and then we ended up getting this, this mom figure in Atlantis when they recast the role. Um, and I don't think it's the actress's fault either. I, I think it's just the writing. They, they turned her into the mom. But then they also gave Taylor a very maternal slant on how she treated the men on the show. Mm-hmm. I had a real hard time ever wanting to ship Taylor with anybody. Um, I agree. Because she mothered them. And Weir did the same thing, but she was the bad parent. <laughs> Yeah, she was she was she was the mom who it's like, um, you know, where you're going like Bobby got his head stuck in the in the his bike chain, and she's the mom thinking about it and going, well, is he bleeding very much? And you're like, well, that's what's the point? What what's the point of that question? His head is stuck in a bike chain, and because she's the one who stops to ponder, it's like, why are we pondering this? Get him out of the bike chain, and that was always weird. She was always. thinking too much. She was always making bad decisions. Well, I don't ag- you know, I don't agree with that, you know. And and oh, her notion of security, you know, it just that also comes down to bad writing is the bad research about um what force protection would look like in in that kind of situation and giving codes the, directly into their gate room to um people from other, conceivably allies, but allies on other planets, basically people who are not part of their expedition, being able to get directly into their city, no military commander would allow that. It doesn't make sense. So, you know, we kind of are left to believe that Elizabeth overruled John on being a sane military commander. 
even though we don't really see that, but she overruled him so many times on military matters. She's very emotional. Um, she's not particularly professional. Uh, she creates, um, she's indecisive, and um, that creates hostility and resentment among her staff. Uh, she is not the person, um, the character, that really is capable of managing a personality like McKay. Much less all the little miniature versions of him running around on the city. Because while McKay is an extreme example of a really smart person who doesn't really have the social skills of an adult, he isn't the only one. All the civilians Kavanaugh? on the city are exceptional in their own way. You don't yeah. get to be where you are in that particular universe with that kind of access to that kind of military hardware and that kind of secret by being ordinary. Being mediocre. They're all, they're all special, really intelligent people. And she can't handle McKay, much less like I said, all the little ones underneath him who are just literally as bad as he is, he just gets a spotlight. The original actress was available. She'd already bought a house or rented a house in Canada and was on, but she got pregnant and they didn't want to wait on her. But she was already in place. She her a five year contract. Or she I mean, heard angles. Many, they didn't want to accommodate her pregnancy. Come on. How many how many shows have we all watched where the actress was obviously pregnant and they're cheating her angles on the shots as much as possible and adjusting her clothes? And we know the actress is pregnant. We're not dumb. But we suspend our disbelief because the character is not pregnant. It is not an insurmountable problem. It's just the producers are being complete twat waffles. Um. Spirit asks, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce your first name, your, the, the first part of your name, and I don't want to mess it up. I'm curious if you thought this way about Weir when you wrote your earlier works like Sentinels of Atlantis and Lantean Legacy. If you look at my casting for Lantean Legacy and Sentinels of Atlantis, you will notice that I cast the first actress to play her. When I write Elizabeth Weir on her game, strong a genuine member of the of the of the expedition, she's she's doing her part. I used the first um, Jessica Steen. When I'm writing her as an asshole, I use Tori Higgins. So, but yeah, um, so I can write her either way. And I can write Dumbledore as someone who is just um, kind of a dotty old fool who makes mistakes, who doesn't really pay attention, who's um, really used to getting his way. Um, or I can write him as evil. Yeah, and that's. that's there's a lot. There's a, you, you can twist. A character around a whole lot. Um, with Keller, um, again, 
I can do a lot with her because she's not she's um she's written badly on the show. But if I take her out of the situations that made me hate her, like with what with what might have been, she's only on the city. She um, she goes with the first expedition and um, she makes different decisions. So the Keller you get back on Earth on what might have been is not the same Keller that you see. Um, even in ties that bind, who was very timid and submissive and not very good at her job because she can't handle dominance in a professional setting. Um, or the Keller you see on human nature, who is vindictive and mean-spirited, um, who expects to get a certain thing and doesn't get it and behaves very badly as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, these are This is a character that you can move around in a lot of different ways. And I think the characters that suffer from secondary characters are often the ones that are the easiest to twist because writers just don't pay as much attention to them and what their motivations are. Now, some some secondary characters are very difficult to twist. Like, I would have a really hard time making um, Zelenka a bad guy. Um, I think he was well, always really straightforward. Well, don't 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 ruin it. Don't don't tell me how you can make Zelenka a bad guy. He's 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 almost like he's almost like a little Czech snarky unicorn. I don't I don't want him to be a bad guy. Um, excuse me, he's my little Czech unicorn. I, I um, think you could make him an antihero really easily. I could see the antihero role for him. Yeah, I just don't see him as a villain. But it's all about perspective because the antihero is a villain to somebody. <laughs> Well, he's that's a villain true. in somebody's story. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking, but, you know, what if Zelenka kind of had a crush on McKay and went around killing anybody who made McKay unhappy? Well, I think that's cute. Sort of sweet. <laughs> oh, see, see, it's all perspective. It is perspective, but see, some characters are just you can only you can only move them so much, and the the fuzzier their motivations are for why they do weird shit. Or the more inconsistent they are, the easier it is to turn them. And so that's why sometimes when you read a character who someone's turned into a bad guy, and your, your suspension of disbelief takes a swan dive off the balcony, it's because they either they didn't effectively turn them enough for you, or didn't turn them in a way that was believable, or it's just the character canonically is can't be twisted that much. I think having Zelenka embrace um, his inner badass would not be mean, Barb. I think it would be, you know, a service to his character. I think it would be. I think that would actually be. One of my favorite shorts is an Atlantis short where um, Lorne. I'm not sure. Yeah, he has the gene. He has the gene. And Lorne has decided that um, Jennifer Keller makes his CO unhappy. Because she's taking up too much of McKay's time, which makes John Shepard unhappy. And Lauren, being his, a good XO, decides to handle that situation. So he locks Keller in a room using his ATA gene and lets her starve to death. And the city <laughs> helps him. <sighs> and every once in a while, he'll walk by that door that's no longer a door and pat the wall where, where she's been entombed, really pleased with himself. <laughs> yeah, see, I bet see we talked one about this. 
we talked about this with bad Tony. Guys we're, the person's yeah. I don't see, but we talked about this with Tony. We were totally on board with him being a serial killer. Well, that's not exactly the hero of the mo- the show, you know. I'm not sure who the hero was in that, but we were really down for it. So sometimes you can take a character and have them do something really heinous, and it's like, yes, that's really weirdly in character, and I don't know why. <laughs> and there, Willow is has coughed up the link for us. She's awesome. Forever so lost. I gotta read this. I gotta read this. <laughs> I haven't read it. She does Fantastic. have exceptional things at Google Foo. She does. She really does. Um, but yeah, you know the the Evan Lauren story is called Forever Lost, and you can find it on um, uh, archive of our own. Um, the author. Oh, it's that's Tarlin. I, so yeah. I love Tarlin. I love Tarlin too. I have like a huge crush on Tarlin. I have a huge writer crush on Tarlin. And sometimes it's actually, I think, easier to. Um, I think sometimes one of the reasons why is I think when an author does a really good job of crafting a villain and making them human, because most villains are human, they have motivation, they have good points, they have things that their family loves about them, you know, they maybe they maybe they're your your bad guy who does horrible things to your hero is still beloved by his children because he was a good father, you know, so you can have that's more realistic is that people are are multifaceted and they may not be villain to everybody it's why you know there's so many like mob AUs that people really get into um where your hero is um a mob boss but he's like the i don't know the compassionate mob boss or something is people can see that people are multifaceted and what happens i think sometimes is when you've got a multifaceted villain is people sometimes relate to them to a degree that the author maybe didn't intend. And I actually would call that really good craft. It's like people are relating to my bad guy, but then people can almost, it can almost make your reader a little uncomfortable. Like I'm, I'm relating to this bad guy and I'm a little bit sad that he's dead now because raise your hand folks. If figuratively, of course, well, you can actually raise your hand. I don't care. I'm not going to know. Um, if at the end of the first money movie, you were sad that Imhotep was dead. I was rooting for Imhotep the whole fucking time. That was a little bit of a fail in the hero, though, because I kind of wanted the heroes to be, you know, I wanted both of them to die. <laughs> but, you know, but I I, I liked Imhotep better. Although, the one person I didn't want to die was, what was his name? Um, Artis Bay? Is that his name? I, I didn't want him Artis to die. Bay. Oh, I did not want him to die. He oh. he needed to be right off in the sunset. Love, um, that love. Was, that, was, that would have been good. But 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 Rick and Evie, I was like, meh. <laughs> <laughs> the second movie was sad. The second movie was sad because their love, their love was proved Wasn't proved real. to be fickle. It was more on his side. What than was on really her. interesting about that scene is um, it was fickle for him too, because Rick is telling Evie. Stay. Don't come here. Just go back. Just stay. I don't want you to get hurt. And she's going to do it anyway. And Imhotep is calling for her. Come, come, come save me. Come help me. And she runs away. Neither one of them love true. Yeah, that's true. 
That's very true. Now, the second movie did flesh out both Anoxinamun and Imhotep as more as characters, and you related to them less in the second movie, I felt, especially Anoxinamun. I could not relate to her at all. Um, but in the first movie, he was more of a sympathetic bad guy, even though he was like mass murderer. Right. But then you find out that she's kind of a cunt. And you're like, "She's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you love about her? Was it just because she... And then, so then by the second movie, you do start to question. The first movie, you think that they were just in love and um, uh, victims of political machinations. But in the second movie, you start to question what his motivation was in being with her to begin with. Um, because she was kind of horrible. So was it just because she was untouchable and he coveted power um, and she was the pharaohs and he and wanted so what he couldn't she. have? And so did she. I mean, she was um, arrogant and vain. And and Pharaoh didn't adore her enough. He adored his daughter more than his future second, third, fourth, fifth wife. So it became, you know, so she was... Like I said, she's a cunt. <laughs> yeah. So their their it epic big... love, once it had some context, wasn't quite so epic. But in the first movie, you didn't have any of that context. But it does so it easy. It does shine a really um, interesting light on Evie and Rick. That that their love is something yeah. special. Um. Especially in the end, when when he's begging her to to get away. To don't try to save him because it's too dangerous and she's going to do it anyway. And, you know, there's that tangible love and it's just amazing chemistry between the two actors made it really um, physical. I mean, you could almost feel it. Um, but, yeah. The Mummy and The Mummy 2, the original ones with Brandon Fraser, don't watch the new one. I heard it sucked. I haven't seen the new one. But I, the, the odds of me seeing a Tom Cruise movie in the theaters very slim, very <laughs> slim. Um, I have to watch those at home. If I'm really, if somebody really feel like, you know, talks me into to watching a Tom Cruise movie, it's going to happen um, at home where I can take breaks when I get really irritated and tired of looking at him. Um, except that movie yeah, where he, he gets he, killed he, over he, and over again. I watched that. I that, haven't that, watched that. I keep meaning to. That, but that segment where he gets killed over and over again, I watch it like, um, I watch it for like 20 minutes over and over, just on repeat. For stars, it's it is, and for stars, it's funny. It's funny because some of the ways, some of the ways he died, it's just hysterical. But um, <laughs> and then there's this one way he dies, one where he makes this little noise when he dies. It's, I don't know why it tickles me, but whatever. But yeah, I watched it on repeat. <laughs> I just kept rewinding. I, you know, I didn't mind the, the Mummy Three. I really wish that it got Rachel Wise back for the part for Part Three. I didn't yeah, like Bella the new Evie. It, it was a tough sell. It was a tough sell. Yeah, I hear. I, I hear she's joining the cast of NCIS. Is that? I wouldn't know. I haven't watched it since before Tony left. 
Yeah. I don't watch it anymore either, but I have family that are devoted to it. Yeah, next season she's coming in as a series regular. Maria Bella is going to be on NCIS. Yeah, maybe. And, and so there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with your audience relating to your villain at all. Um, that's just one of the things I think you have to balance, right? You don't want them to relate to him to such a degree that you want your that they want your hero dead, and you don't want to have such a characterization problem with your secondary characters that they're easily to insert into the villain role. In the short and junk one that I did about this, I talked about Loki and how um, by the end of um, uh, was it Dark World? I was kind of mostly on board with um, Loki kicking Thor's ass because um, and there, and there are two things in this is, is two lessons to learn is that they gave us too much about Loki to be sympathetic for because he's repeatedly betrayed over and over and over again by Odin and um, people who are supposed to be his family. And um, he is, he's, he, he's their victim more than not. So when he acts out, you can almost, okay, yeah, I get it, Loki. You, you, I get it. Kick them all in the face. I get it. Um, so the moral of that story is, you know, don't cast Tom Hilston as your villain. And <laughs> Don't ever don't, cast Tom Hiddleston as a villain. villain it's, too much. It's, it's going to backfire on you. <laughs> don't give your villain too much, um, so much backstory that your reader will sympathize with them more. Speaking of Tom Hiddleston, I watched the new Kong movie. He's so pretty. <laughs> And you know when I when I told people they said what do you think like the Kong movie Kong Skull Island is Tom Hiddleston's vehicle for standing around in a tight t-shirt and staring off into the distance. He his acting oh, ability I, I was like did he act? Did, I asked <laughs> somebody asked me I don't even remember that he spoke. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did, but mostly it was this t-shirt. There was t-shirt. a badass scene with the pool cue, and, and yeah, wow. but there was this there was this t-shirt that inexplicably never got any looser, and um, I think what you said was baggy or something, <laughs> but never no, it, it was it was it was peck hugging the whole movie, and he was he was making sure you saw that too. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that Pretty. the director was sitting there going, Tom, change your angle just a little bit, pull your shoulders back. No, chest good. out. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure good. that was constant direction for him. Was you know, look off into the distance. <laughs> if you want to see a movie where Tom is put on display as Man Candy through the whole thing, practically from like eight nine minutes in all the way to the fucking end, watch Kong Skull Island. <laughs> yes, he 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 is there to be eye candy because. I'm not sure anybody had a significant role. <laughs> everybody's like, everybody's either eye candy or oh, comic relief, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, except the yeah. monkey. Kong had the biggest, most, Kong, Kong had the meatiest, most significant role. And he also had the best backstory. <laughs> he did. He had a very good, they had a very interesting backstory for Kong. It was like, huh, that's different. It's kind of like he's the um, he's the 
he's the final guard against the world being invaded by terrible monsters, and they try to kill him. And he's, he's just trying to, to do him. his damn job. Yeah, he, he, he's he's, he's literally just doing his damn job, and they got to get in his way. Yeah, the, and so, the, so that's the case. The Kong Skull Island, that is a case of where, and actually I think they were pretty clear about the military complex being the bad guys, right? Right. Because it wasn't Kong. And it's certainly not the Islanders. The, it's it's well, it could, you could kind of maybe, I guess I guess the idea is that the real the villain is also these creatures that Kong is trying to defeat, or he's keeping them at bay. I don't remember what they were called. Um, but really, the 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 bad guy that you, I mean, as satisfied as we all are when when a monster gets there, you know, the bad monster that wants to eat everybody gets their you know head bashed in. Um, the bad guy that you were really happier being defeated, and you and actually he had a lot of motive for what he was doing. Motive that was very clear and understandable was the guy played by Samuel L. Jackson, who um, obviously had a great deal of PTSD. Um, a great deal. So in the, I think that in the end, you can say even the War Machine is the villain. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Because with him, you understood exactly why he was doing what he was doing, and you understood why he was so irrational, and you still wanted him to be killed at the end. I mean, that was a really yeah. good job of the, of crafting him, where you you start off liking him, kind of, and he's a good guy, and his men are very loyal to him, and you see him progressing and evolving through the movie and kind of breaking down and becoming a raving lunatic. To the point that you're like, yeah, he needs to go because you like Kong more than you dislike this other guy, more than you more than you sympathize with this guy. So it's like you've got these two sympathetic roles um, that come up against each other, and one of them has to go. And you like Kong more than you like this guy. So even though you understand him all the way along the way, but I think I think you're right that it's what created him, what made him the way he is, to where he couldn't think beyond blow it up and kill it is the bad guy, is Revenge. the real bad guy of that story. Well, what's really interesting about Kong movies is that um, for all of Kong's size and sometimes um, um, monstrous acts, depending on the movie, um, Kong is still... Um, Kong always gets my sympathy because they've taken him from his home. In and, and, and most of the movies, he's taken from his home. And he's put on display, and he's treated with such disrespect, and and, and it's just foolishness. And then they kill him. Mm-hmm. Growing up, one of my favorite um, giant big monkey movies. I love them. I fucking love them. I had them all. Um, I really enjoy the Kong version, um, the '79 or the '69. Jessica Jessica Lang. Lang. I love that version the best. It's my favorite um Kong movie. But my favorite giant monkey movie was Mighty Joe Young. That was a good movie, yeah. I I really enjoy Mighty Joe Young because he grows up with um this girl and um he gets they 
these assholes come along and they talk her into taking Joe to the U.S. and turning him into an attraction. Well, Joe gets loose and causes problems and the powers that be are going to kill Joe. And Joe ends up saving all these children in a um, in an orphanage um, that, that caught fire. Um, and then uh, Joe gets to go home to Africa with his girl and she gets the boy. <laughs> and it was my favorite. I actually have the song that she plays for Mighty Joe Young for for, for Joe. Um I have it in a music box. Oh. That's so My cute. mom got it for me on my 18th birthday. She found a um a man who makes music boxes and it's this pretty little girl sitting in a desk. Um and when you wind it up, it plays the song from Mighty Joe Young. So, it was my favorite movie growing up. I had it on VHS. Um, but first I had it on Beta. <laughs> I had it on Beta. Uh, and then I had it on he's VHS. He's dating himself. I don't have... I don't. I know, right? I don't. I don't have it on DVD. I'm gonna have to buy it on DVD now. I'm, I'm gonna have to go to Amazon and and buy it. Cause damn, how can I not have it? But yes. Um. And so I I I love those monkey movies. I ain't gonna lie. So I I was really looking forward to Kong. My mom bought it and she sent me. My mom is so cute. She bought. She always buys a the a movie that has the digital copy if it's available. And then she'll send me a picture of the of the card the voodoo or the uh, ultraviolet code. And I put the code into our account and then we can watch, you know, on the, on the voodoo app. And so um, she sent me uh, the digital code for Kong um, and I watched it and I was like, yay. That's the, one of the problems with the big monster movies is, is particularly the way they're typically written, both Godzilla and Kong, is it's hard to want to see the monster dead because I mean, you know it has to go that way often, not always, but often because of the death and destruction that they're they're causing. But they're created usually the circumstances in which they um, find themselves are the are are the fault of humans. And so how can you... The original... Yeah. The original Mojo Young took place was 1949. It's in black and white. But there is a version with Charlize Theron. And I've watched it, but it isn't my favorite. Um, I like the original, the 1949 version. Oh, they have it on Blu-ray. Well, the fifty foot woman was an actual person. <laughs> but like even even in that in that Jurassic Park movie where they brought the dinosaur to LA or San Diego, wherever the fuck they brought that dinosaur, um, you didn't really feel anything but sympathy for that poor T Rex trying to find its baby. It didn't matter know, how many people right? it stepped on, how many pools it destroyed, Freaking you were not you were not going to feel sorry. You were not going to dislike that T-Rex because it's just it's just a mama T-Rex trying to find its baby that they took. They they kidnap this 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 um dinosaur from its island and take its baby. I mean, how are you going to think that the dinosaur deserves any kind of mistreatment? 
Yes, they totally brought. They totally had that shit coming. And the, the moral of every monster movie ever is: don't start none, won't be none. That's right. <laughs> and even the Godzilla. You literally movies, bringing that shit on yourself. Because <laughs> even the Godzilla, that one Godzilla, the Godzilla movie, some of the Godzilla movies deal with specifically the one that had um, <sighs> Mouse in it. What was his name? The Godzilla with um. The guy who married to Sarah Jessica Parker. Help me. Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. So the one with Matthew Broderick in it. You so, said Mouse, and it immediately popped into my brain. I don't know why I didn't say it, because I know who Mouse is. <laughs> okay. So, um, he, um, in that movie, even though Godzilla just, apparently out of the blue, decides to leave his island and go and start nesting elsewhere, I guess her, she did lay eggs. Um, she, even though she just decided out of the blue to go to this heavily populated area, so they don't really explain why Godzilla decided to move. But still, if they hadn't been, they very clear in the movie that it was nuclear um, testing that had created Godzilla. So again, we come back to we brought you brought that shit on yourself. Quit, you know, you know, you know. Uh, doing nuclear testing um, and you won't get mutant monsters was sort of the message there, right? I love Lady Hawk. It's one of my favorite movies. I fucking love it. Um, I would love to write an AU of uh, Lady Hawk with John and Rodney. (laughs) That would be really good. John we would could not be object. Um, the captain. John could be the captain, and Rodney would be the hawk. Isabeau. Isabeau. <sighs> when you think about um, the bishop being the bad guy, and he had a lot of like sub bad guys. You had a lot of little altercations. That hunter guy who killed the wo- the wolves um, yeah. throughout the movie. But the bad guy was clearly the bishop. Um. And he, it was his very straightforward. Deeply rooted, yeah, very deeply rooted was, in reality. Yeah, he, he wanted was, to he, fuck Isabel. <laughs> yeah, he did. He wanted her, and he couldn't have her. And he was vengeful and petty, and he had too much power, and he abused his power. And so, it's a bad guy we can understand because we see those kinds of abuses. We see men do crazy shit when women tell them no. We see people in power abuse it to get their way. So if somebody doing that kind of stuff resonates as true. In a terrible fashion, um, I remember being enthralled with, with Lady Hawk when I was very young, and I really don't think I understood the ramifications of the bishop's... Um, I don't think I understood what the bishop wanted until I was a teenager. Um, and when I realized that he had driven these two people to this because of lust, not love, because he didn't love her. And then in the end, he tried to kill her. So nobody, mm-hmm. so, so nobody could have her if he couldn't have her. And I was like... Oh my God, you fucking monster! Because he turned 
terrible. He tortured her because he couldn't have her for years. She was tortured. He tortured them. He, he, he tortured them both. And, but it's it's what he did to supposedly the object of his affection. I hope you guys heard the air quotes. Um, in in that that is the thing that is like, whoa, this is what you do to somebody you claim to love. Which really, he was obsessed with her. And obsession, and this is, and this is, we see this in real life. Obsessions are dangerous. When people get obsessed, they are unpredictable. And they do crazy, demented, sometimes very evil, bad, wrong stuff. And that's what he did. He was obsessed. And that's so far beyond just lusting after somebody, just wanting somebody, that you would rather them be dead than not with you. Or worse, rather than be dead than see them be happy with anybody else. But you see, this obsession trait, obsession is a really good trait to give any villain. I mean, when when you look at it, um, even Tom Riddle was, his his base was obsession. Mm Mm-hmm. And you could argue with obsession, Anakin Skywalker um, was obsessed with Padme. And that obsession and that unhealthy love and... um, was was his path to the dark side. He, he preyed on him actually, you know, the 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 emperor preyed on his insecurity and his his obsessive love um and his fear of her death and he he preyed on all that and turned Um, Anakin Skywalker from from the path of good, um, and so ob- ob- obsession itself. I mean, even Dumbledore, his obsession with the Hallows, and even with Grindelwald, which led to the, the murder of his sister, whether he did it or whether Grindelwald did it, um, is debatable. Uh, and his obsession with the Hallows, and um, his obsession with again. controlling controlling all of these people and all these events and all these things. Um, it's it's all there, and that kind of dark emotion um, is understandable, and it makes for the best villain. When you can see it and almost touch it, that obsession. The, the bishop has it in Lady Hawk. Um, he's obsessed with her. Um, he's, just, he's obsessed with owning her, and if he can't own her, then she needs to die. I think the original Lady Hawk is high fantasy. If you put Lady Hawk in a modern um, setting in, in an urban environment like New York, it would be urban fantasy. Yeah, if you mirror that roaming the countryside thing, I don't think you're going to hit the urban fantasy. You'd have to have them be hiding out in the city or something. But yeah, I definitely think, because that application of magic... Um, but the original, but it, yeah, it, it is the, paranormal. The romance. original was more like high fantasy. Yeah. Was was more classic fantasy, classical fantasy than it was. It was was an urban fantasy because they spent most but of their time. The romance plot is too central for it to be anything less than a paranormal romance. Dawn's well, there right. were romance plots. You can have romance plots in high fantasy, I think. Um, yeah, but if you took the romance out of Lady Hawk, 
There wouldn't be anything yeah, left. Yeah, you're right. If you, if you, <laughs> there, yeah, I agree. If you're trying to turn it into a mod, if you're trying to retell it and turn it into a modern urban fantasy, you couldn't do it because once you take the romance out of it, you just have a a wolf and a hawk as unlikely companions. Now, because why would you, you have done it? Take, you could you could take them, Navarre and Isabeau, and put them in a modern setting, and if their circumstances aren't your main plot point. If, say, for instance, they didn't believe there was an option to be free, that they didn't, the, the, the curse would never end, um, and they exist um, in a modern world, and um, maybe they even share a home, and he goes to work, and when he comes home, you know, and then she leaves. And so they ha- they share this space, with, but they never see each other. And you and and you could take this theme and do something really interesting with it, where um, you've got one character who's living his life during the day, and an, another who's living his life at night, and they are cursed by their circumstances um, to exist in this way, and they might not even have a romantic connection. Yeah, I think you'd need like a whodunit kind of thing, and it'd be an interesting thing to do where they're both trying to solve a mystery of some sort, but they can't solve it together. So one of them works on it during the day, one of them works on it at night. Notes. Notes. Yeah. Clues for the other person to follow up on. Maybe audio today. Yeah. Videos. Oh, that'd be really cool. They could leave videos for each other. Yeah, so I think that'd be really interesting. So you're kind of doing it. This is sort of like the way they do. You do you do a riff on a fairy tale, is you sort of reframe the elements and give them a different spin. Um, or you maybe they classic. were cursed in, individually, and they came together because they were cursed by the same person, and they fall in love through the videos. Like their main thrust is finding the person who cursed them and, and lifting it, but through the course of working together um, and being together as they are, um, living in this circumstance, in this cursed circumstance, and communicating with each other with, with notes and videos, that they kind of fall in love with each other. That could be a and really a, excellent subplot. I agree. Because that's a case oh, my where God. I think I have my idea for November. There you go. <laughs> and so then Yay! you've got you, the romance is set aside as a completely separate element that can be pulled out um, and the story still exists. They still have their curse. They still are working together to find a solution to their curse and the love element is it's like frosting but you've still got the urban fantasy cake. And we like frosting on our cake, Kira. We do. Now, okay, okay, so I have my idea. I have been, like, really struggling with this. I just, I could not think of anything um, that would really work for me um, that was really um, interesting enough to carry it for, um, the only thing was is I was going to write in first person, and I cannot write this in first person. I'm going to have to go to third, because I cannot do alternating first person. What the fuck? Yeah, you need both (laughs) points of view. This is one of those ideas where, where you know it will suffer from not having both points of view. Um, and we discourage alternating first person. 
it's not it's not it's not it's not no good bad wrong. It's just we discourage it's just it. terrible. <laughs> no, I mean you can say it's no good bad wrong. I think it's terrible and it's ugly. It's ugly craft. Ugly. It, it's it's weird because I don't when you've got a deep point of view, it's especially you can do a deep third person and kind of change it up some, have different points of view. Um, although even when I write a deep third person, there's only one character whose point of view is deep, and that's my main character. Everybody else's is a little bit more shallow. But when you're writing first person, that is the deepest point of view you can get, and it is just weird when it when it switches up. I said I've only, and I think I've only like read it twice in my whole life where I thought it worked as, as the way it was written. Um, so it's just, it's just, that's just. I've read a lot, so it's, it rarely works for me. I don't know because I'm torn between. Um, Honestly, I think this would work really well as a Harry Potter AU. It pisses me off that I'm mad at the Harry Potter fandom because they're assholes and they're demanding shit from me all the time. Um, because it would be great if um, it was Harry and Draco. Yeah. Um, I also think it would work really well as John and Rodney. Um and I'm very comfortable in their points of view. Uh, I could do it, Steve and Tony. You could totally. I was sitting here thinking she could she could mothership the fuck out of this. <laughs> I could mothership the fuck out of this. <laughs> mothership. But no, I'm really mad to Harry Potter fandom, and it's it's difficult to write. When I'll, all I know is that if I and I've already decided that I am never doing another RT project that, that that's Harry Potter because they are so ugly about it. Oh, so ugly. I can't. I can't. But I could mothership the fuck out of this. Beam me up. So it would be a magical for, AU. You're spoiled for choice for bad guys on the mothership. Because you've got Woe Fat, you've got um, the Governor, you've got um, Eli Disease. Can I say that it really pissed me off that they made the female Governor a bad guy? Yes, it was terrible. It was terrible. And I, I have a hard time writing her as a bad guy when I write The Mothership because it's just, I like Jean Smart. I do, too. She's a great actress, and she's really engaging on screen. And when they made her the bad guy, I was like, what are you doing? But you've got all the bad guys from – actually, I was I would sort of be okay with Doris being the bad guy, too, because I really can't stand her. Um, but you've spoiled for choice for bad guys, for who who your bad guy would be. Ziva. Um, <laughs> Ziva. <laughs> it, cause the thing is, that if, if it's a jealousy angle, then it, it, that if I go on the original theme – a jealousy angle. Um, I could go and place it would make the NCIS fandom want to kill me. <laughs> Gibbs. Yeah. 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 But, but when you look at the role of the bishop, um, he is in a position of power, 
Um, so it could be uh, Jennifer Shepard. Um, Shepard, yeah. Vance. Um, Vance, uh, the, the the governor in Hawaii Five-0. Um, um, Jean, it could be Jean. Um, it could be Gibbs. Uh, it could be Tony's father. Um, yeah, Tony's dad. Renee Benoit. I could throw a whole whole blanket of homophobia over that and cat and, and do either his father or his mother. Um Steve's mother and Tony's father. They could be part of like the same dark magic sect or something and they each cast similar curses on their sons for being homosexual or something. I don't know. And or maybe Doris sought Senior out when she found out um, that he had cursed his son. Would you do mine? And too? asked him to do something. Yeah. I have one. They're they're very. I have one like that. Would you do mine? Hint, hint, <laughs> nudge nudge. Or I could construct a um, the, the thing about using a canon character as a bad guy, and I've discussed this before, is that yes, you can twist them and turn them and make them a complete and total asshole, and you don't gotta do any twisting on Senior or Doris to turn them into fucking assholes because they're no, literally they're, fucking assholes. There's plenty of assholes um, in both those shows. I'm not sure what Bill's Lady Holder is offering to pay here. Um, are you offering to pay his bail money <laughs> or his legal bills or, or, or what? I think she's offering to pay your bills. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> but maybe not. Her travel expenses, because he's someone offering to hunt down people. Um, um, Who's Mouse? Mouse, 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 Mouse. Oh, like Doris saying she'd pay all seniors' bills. But that's what I was saying about um, Mouse. Um, oh, Mouse is McGee. think Mouse is McGee? Yeah, he could be like a hacker. A black cat. <laughs> oh, no, who's the, um, who's the guy on Hawaii Five-0 who, who, who is a black cat? No, 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 not him. Um, who's the guy that's, that's the conspiracy theorist? He was, he was. Oh, um, oh yeah, he's awesome. Um, um, he was. Um, uh, he was Harley on Lost. Toast. Toast. Jerry. Oh. Jerry, Jerry. 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 Jerry's mouth. Jerry. Jerry. Bima. The other guy who would be a good, good, a good mouse on Hawaii. It's also Hawaii Five O. I'm blanking on his name, the Emmy from the first two seasons. Oh, I loved him. I loved him. I adored him. him. Palmer would be a good mouse, too. So you're spoiled for choice for mouse. Um, but I really, the first the first thing that crossed my mind when I was thinking about mouse was the, the Emmy from Hawaii Five-0 from the first couple seasons. I'm blanking on his name. Um, no, Gerald was Max. It's Max. Max. Max is on Hawaii Five-0. Gerald was on NCIS. Dr. Max um, Bergman. The role of Mouse is interesting in the movie. I'm not sure what he would do 
um, how he would play. Um, if they're cursed together, I have to have someone in the position to portray them both. Um, if they're cursed separately and they come together because of their circumstances... Mouse um, could bring them together. Mouse could bring them together. If if Mouse could bring... Which means it Steve. has to be Jerry. It has to be Jerry. Because yeah. Jerry is a conspiracy nut and he could be online and find Tony who's yeah. living in these cursed circumstances and it's the exact opposite of Steve's. And he's like, dude, I found your soulmate. <laughs> Maybe you guys, you guys can, can solve this shit together. <laughs> you guys can double time on this. One of you working during the day, one of you working at night, and Mouse, you know, you could help, Jerry could help them set up the equipment they need to talk to each other. And I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen Eureka, so I don't know who Henry is. Mouse wasn't pivotal to, well, he helped, He got out of the prison, so he was Navarre's way into the city so that he could get to the bishop and kill him because that was his goal. But Mouse found out they were cursed, and he believed in that the curse could be lifted. So he helped them catch Navarre while, while he was a wolf and got very injured. Um, and Navarre agrees to go along with the plan because he hurt Mouse while he was a wolf. And they put him um, in the cage and they take him to the bishop as a wolf. That, that's how they get into the city. Um, I remember watching it the first time and when the bell started ringing, I cried. I was like, oh, God, he oh, killed yeah. her. He killed her. Oh, my God, he killed her. And I, I, I was like, tears just streamed down my face. I was like nine, ten years old. I was heartbroken. I was like, oh, no, he's killing her. He's killing her. Oh, my God, he has a knife. And um, then she says his name, and I cried more. <laughs> no. You're getting me. I'm like sitting here getting all teary now. Stop it. I did too. It's just it's really emotional that that moment would be really super emotional for Tony and Steve because they've never met, and then when they have that moment and they finally do meet, it'll be beam me up, baby. I'm a little. I'm a little <laughs> I made myself cry. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so you know, it's really powerful, and I really, Lady Hawk is honestly, it's it's one of my favorite movies, and um, so um, it'll be really interesting. Now I could mix it with casework because they're both cops. I could make Tony a cop in um, maybe he's been moving from job to job hunting for this um, this, this warlock so is he the wolf or is he the hawk? He's the wolf. Yeah, I was gonna say if he's he's probably the one who's who's uh, awake during the day. And Steve is the hawk. And um, I 
I think that um, he's moving from job to job hunting for this warlock who cursed him. So maybe he's, um, I gotta pick out a, a city for them to be in. And so Jerry finds Tony online and he tells Steve, I've, I, I found someone who's in the same position you are because of the same warlock. And he's looking for him. And Steve is working um, as a cop in another city doing the same thing, doing the same search. And they end up uh, what would be really interesting is if their circumstances at work are married. I already got my notepad. What are you talking about? Their their circumstances are mirrored at work and at home. Like Steve says, man, you know, come on, come, um, come do this, and you can live in my house because I won't need it during the day <laughs> or during the night or whatever, you know. And they and they, you know. And then they're at work, people know Tony and they know Steve, but they never see them at the same time because obviously um, they can't work while they're uh, while they're cursed. Then they can argue over which one of them's Clark Kent and which one's Superman. <laughs> they never see us at the same time. And you know, so it'd be just be really, be really interesting. Uh, but the warlock and the curse lifting has to be the, the the main thrust, and the romance has to be a subplot to make but my we'll urban cry. fantasy. We'll goal. still cry at the end when they have their moment. It'll be really interesting to write a book where my main characters fall in love but never actually touch each other until okay, the end. Me sad. You're making me sad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> She said that like she said that like I mean the most amazing thing. And they're going, I just got teary. My main characters never touch each other. I'm like, oh. oh really I got really teary. Um, I made big old wet spots on my nightgown because I picked my nightgown up. I kind of dab at my, you know, <laughs> my eyeballs, and it looks like these big freaking wet know. spots. I don't know. I think I'm going to make my own bad guy because what I was saying earlier but I got kind of distracted was is that when you use a canon character, um, sometimes if you twist them too much, they don't, they're not recognizable. And since I'm very familiar with doing my own OCs, I'd prefer to use an OC for the bad guy. Um, you know, and maybe he's one of those dudes that's like... Um, Cursing his exes? Oh. Like cursing them for leaving him? No one's going to have you? Because you can't be in a relationship if you turn into an animal half the day. So he's ruining right? their love lives forever. Okay, I'm down to 45 seconds. Um Thank you guys for helping me out on my idea, and I hope that I answered your question, Kiki. We answered your question during the course of the night, um, and if not, we can try again. <laughs> well, if you want to talk about bad guys? There's plenty to be had. <laughs> Say good night. Good night, everyone. <laughs>